0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie-Weissman, the Editor-in-Chief of Modern Retail. This week, I'm joined with Jay Dillon, who's a co-founder of Yardbird Furniture. And I'm excited to talk about, A, I love talking about furniture because furniture is a wacky retail section, but also outdoor is exploding these days. And I'm sure Jay will talk all about that. But Jay, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me as well. Absolutely.
0: So, uh... First and foremost, why don't you just give me the the yardbird story? How did it all begin? Uh, and yeah, let's go from there.
1: Sure, I, it sounds cliche, but I was in the market with my wife looking for outdoor furniture, and we were forced to choose between you know kind of low end thousand dollar sets with not great designs that we had to assemble, and high end um, options at five six thousand dollars and. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't working in furniture at the time or even consumer goods products at the time. And I started doing some research, talking with my co-founder who happens to be my dad. His name's Bob Dylan. And, um, he Bob Dylan. Yeah, it really is Bob Dylan. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we, um, he, he has some experience in the lower, lower quality outdoor furniture. And we started talking about, um, the higher, higher quality, higher end product. And, um, after doing some research, I convinced my then-girlfriend, now-wife, to move over to Asia with me. And I became a I, – I lived um, in Hong Kong for three and a half years and really became a student of the manufacturing of outdoor furniture. Um, from there, we – you know, it's a very seasonal business, which I think we, we can get into. I think furniture, as you said, is really interesting. But um, you put seasonality on top of it and it gets really interesting. Um, and so – you know, in season, I would come back to the United States, import product, and sell it. And then out of season, I would go back to Asia, join her, and um, and be working in factories, um, producing great quality furniture. Um, we were six years old now, and as you said, this year has been has been incredible, um, and we see that trend. Uh, we think that trend will continue. To what degree, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping not for for not another pandemic, but. Um, um, you know, we see a lot of millennials moving out of big cities into suburbs and, um, you know, they're wanting out to sit outdoors.
0: I will, I will say this from personal experience and I'm, a, I'm a... An anomalous blip because I live in Brooklyn, but I have I a backyard. Um, uh, and but I have a backyard, and it's been hard to find outdoor furniture, and so. But it's also been that's because it's been sold out everywhere, and it's 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 been interesting just to do it from a consumer standpoint. But anyway, forgive me if you said this already, but when did you first launch? When did it first begin? When you started selling the the furniture in the U.S.?
1: 2016.
0: Got it. And was. Your work in Hong Kong, so were you manufacturing it yourself or were you finding suppliers who were making the best quality? Talk to me about sort of how you went about entering that industry and learning the ins and outs of of how to create outdoor furniture.
1: Sure. So I moved over to Hong Kong. 95% of outdoor furniture is made in either China, Vietnam, or Indonesia. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the first year, I really just became a student of the... Industry on a manufacturing side, so I went to as many factories as possible, met as many people as possible. Um, on weekends when I was in Hong Kong, I actually would take um, sewing classes um, to understand because there's cush- there's a cushion component that needs sewing. Um, when I was in season in the United in the United States selling, um, I was taking welding classes. So I really became a student of of the industry, and um, yeah.
0: So what did you learn in terms of what differentiates high quality from low quality? Is it all just where you source the materials from? Uh, are, I So I feel like this is probably not the same for outdoor furniture, but I feel like a lot of the brands in other in other categories often share manufacturing and share same supplies, and a lot of it comes down to branding. And so how does that work when it comes to outdoor furniture in terms of what you've discovered and how you go about creating your product?
1: I think mat- materials and outdoor are really important. Um, a, f- a sofa that's going to live outside is very different than a sofa that's going to live inside, um, not only in style, but in also in, in just durability. And so it's similar to outdoor in that a, a lot of br- brands are sourcing from similar factories, but really the materials. So uh, aluminum doesn't rust, but it's more expensive mm-hmm. uh, than steel. Um, Acrylic fabric, there's a brand called Umbrella in the industry Is uh, that's an acrylic fabric, will last 10 plus years versus a, a lower quality um, fabric. And then overall, just design. So if you have thicker cushions, um, it's not, K industry term is KD for assembly. So you, if you don't have to do assembly um, and there's things like that. The way I see the industry is it's really bifurcated between that low end stuff. So steel, you know. Olefin fabrics, or uh, yeah, or olefin fabrics um, with you know that fit in a box. Versus at the high end, you've got aluminum that won't rust. You've got acrylic fabric that is similar to what they put on convertibles or boat awnings. Really, really durable fabrics, um, and doesn't need doesn't need you know three hours of assembly when it gets to your house.
0: Got it. And so walk me through your first product line. What was it that you first made? How did it sell? And what was the what was your so you're clearly not the lower sub 1000 price point. But what was your price point And how did you sort of come come about what worked and what resonated with customers?
1: Yeah, so at the low end, you know, your sets are around $1,000. At the high end, they're around $5,000. What we were able to do by sourcing direct from factory is um, get that $5,000 set down to $3,000. And so I think, You know, a lot of people say there's these middlemen and often cases there are, but sometimes they're not. I think, you know, Warby Parker is an easy example. They say they cut out middlemen. Um, You know, I I would presume their biggest competitor is Luxottica. My understanding of Luxottica is they manufacture and they have retail stores. There doesn't seem to be any middlemen there. They're just making great margins. Um, In outdoor furniture, there actually are middlemen. And so, where where they pres- where they live and where they preside is in three locations, Las Vegas, Chicago Merchandise Mart and North Point, North Carolina. And so, let's take the Chicago Merchandise Mart for example. If you were to go to the 17th, 18th or 19th floor of what at one point was the largest building in the United States, three of those floors are all just showrooms of middlemen of outdoor furniture and they're selling to the ski shops in Colorado that are looking to offset their seasonality, or if you're in New York, um, maybe they're, it's a billiards retailer that's looking to offset their seasonality. And so almost none of these guys are sourcing um, direct from factory. Now, we do have some recent competitors that have popped up online that are doing more direct sourcing. And we, we view that as just largely great for the consumer in that you're not buying through these Chicago Merchandise Marts and you shouldn't have to go to a ski shop to buy your outdoor furniture, quite frankly.
0: Walk me through your overall initial, I don't know if marketing plan or just like distribution plan. So if you're not working with the, these distribution marks, how were you getting to consumers? Was it all online? What, what? How did that all work?
1: Yeah, we started pretty simple, actually. So we, we you know, with the seasonality of it, um, I thought it was important just generally with furniture, you know. We, we seem to have these kind of two camps, uh, these online guys, and then the firmly brick and mortar. And I, I somewhat disagree with that premise of saying, why does it have to be one or the other? Um, why can't you have, you know, maybe Yardbird doesn't need to be a thousand showrooms. Um, but what if we had 50 strategically placed showrooms that, you know, are small, uh, but allow somebody to sit in it? And so when we started, we... Uh, when we started the business, we actually did a pop-up in a mall and everything they say about malls is true. <laughs> um, and so when we did the pop-up in the mall, we were, we were in the Santa area, but Santa's in the winter. And so our thought was we could be in the summer, but it turns out it's a bunch of boomers who are getting their exercise and looking for a comfortable place to sit, which was our furniture or um, young millennials that were at the food court looking for a place to eat. And so we we weren't having a ton of success, so we pivoted quickly because we can't miss a season. And we um, just started marketing it on Craigslist out of our warehouse. And we sold yeah we sold about a hundred thousand um, dollars within two weeks out of our warehouse um, in our first year. And then, where is
0: this? Out of curiosity, this was in
1: Minneapolis. Okay. And so then the next year we brought in about half a million dollars for the product, and we launched a website, and we. We continued to sell out of our, our warehouse, and we sold out in about three weeks half a million dollars worth of product. And then so as we, we grew, um, we're a little bit different. We're not, we weren't digitally native first. We, we tested it kind of on Craigslist and out of our, our warehouse, and then we grew into a website and then these showrooms. Right now we have seven showrooms across the U.S., and we're, we're expanding them.
0: Do you think the Craigslist like the Craigslist thing is wild, and it makes a lot of sense? People look for furniture on Craigslist all the time, so I'm not necessarily surprised. But like, did that like help get your name out? Did you know doing a year of Craigslist sales, people say, "Oh, I've heard of this before." Now I'll go to their website, or is that just sort of finding the customers initially where they are, and then and then you did digital marketing the next year to get people to actually to the DTC site?
1: Yeah, so I think it was a it was in it was I wouldn't have wanted to start it any other way. In that <laughs> we, um. It kind of felt like an underground cool thing. People were going into this warehouse and saying this, you know, these two guys are selling outdoor furniture and it feels like I'm getting a really good deal for it. And then we we grew into that kind of more traditional, you know, D to C, you know, over over a course of three, four years, you know, we don't still advertise on Craigslist, um, but it created this kind of cool factor locally um, to get started.
0: Interesting. So how did you do the the showroom expansion? Were you going mostly to suburban areas? Did you do any research in terms of where you wanted to expand or was it just sort of cheap, cheapish real estate and go from there?
1: No. So we, um, our customers don't live in Soho, New York. Um, they, you know, if we take the the New York analogy, they're probably in Brooklyn or Long Island or Westchester. They've got a big backyard and it's almost an obligation to, to fill that backyard or that big patio with, with furniture. And so, um, you know, we signed our first lease in Minneapolis because that's where, where I'm from and that's where we started the business. And, um, yeah, we had a lot of great success. So we look for these kind of first tier suburbs, um, where to place stores and, uh, first tier suburbs with high visibility. So again, you won't find us in Soho, but you know, next year you might find us in Westchester.
0: Got it. How do you get the word out in terms of for these showrooms? Or was like, what, what what is sort of your your strategy for unfolding as you expand these places?
1: Yeah, when we we look at a new market, we usually when we move there, we already have a good amount of customers from our website. Um, and then from there, you know, we do a lot of the traditional marketing of Google, Facebook, Instagram remarketing, we do TV, even, um, we'll do a little bit of print and and PR, you know, getting our, our story out of talking with, you know, people, people like that are listeners of modern retail, and um, and after the first year, we just see a, a massive word of mouth tailwind. And so, you know, for our first year in a market, it's it's not unheard of for us to spend half a million dollars announcing that we're there. But in year three, we'll sm- we'll spend a small small fraction of that. Um, because we're known in the market and people want to tell other people about, you know, the great, the great furniture at the great price that they're getting from Yardbird.
0: I have a few questions and they're somewhat related, but first is Minneapolis your biggest market or where, where is your biggest market right now?
1: Minneapolis is our biggest market right now. Um, and we... We just opened our first two store market in Washington D.C., and I would guess that that in the next year or two will overtake Minneapolis. So,
0: how do you go about? So, I mean, when markets are big, you know, you'll always you will likely continue to get repeat customers. But for a product like yours, it's a significant investment, and the idea is you're going to have it hopefully for a decade. And so, how how do you go about? sort of dealing with that when you have the kind of product that is such a significant investment and people only have one backyard, they don't necessarily have many rooms, like it's for other furniture companies, you have many rooms you need to decorate?
1: Yeah, well, first, what I've learned and I, is that I, we're often a- underestimating Americans. So a lot of them uh, just like more, more stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, and oftentimes they'll, they'll, you know, have a front patio, or they'll have a cabin, or they'll have a house in Arizona. Um, so we do see a good amount of repeat customers. But um, the the other the other component, and I've been just as surprised as anybody else, is it seems like every year there's just a lot of demand, and so you might be buying it every ten years, but it seems like every year there's a lot of people looking to buy outdoor furniture. So. I think it's similar to a car, you know, you can have a car for 10, 15 years if you take care of it. But it seems like every year, new people are needing cars.
0: That's a perfect segue. The last year has been pretty insane for nearly every industry ever. Um, Furniture, especially, or like home goods, we should say, but outdoor has been sort of exploding. And I'm pretty obsessed with this just on a personal level. I think every brand has pivoted to be an outdoor brand. Like we have, like my favorite example is OXO, you know, who makes like yeah. like whisks. They now have like yeah. a line with, I forget who it is, but pretty much they're now an outdoor whisk brand. And, I, <laughs> so, uh, um, but I think that, you know, you're perfectly uh, positioned in this. You know, you, you, you make outdoor furniture. People have been hanging out outside. I had to, my personally, I had to update my outdoor furniture because I wanted friends in my backyard. So what did you experience sort of, a year ago, or let's say, you know, 15 months ago, what was sort of the overall experience as a, as an outdoor furniture company?
1: Yeah. So outdoor, the outdoor category in furniture is the, is the fast, even pre pandemic was the fastest growing in the, in the furniture category. And so then COVID seemed to accelerate that even more. And so, yeah, you are seeing more and more brands get into it. We really like specializing in it because there's just a lot of questions around outdoor furniture and you want somebody who's an expert, you know, it, talking about it. Um, and so, yeah, we, we obviously saw tremendous growth. Now the big question everybody asks is, what does that growth look like after COVID? And I think that there's, Um, there's some big trends of millennials moving to suburbs and, you know, increasingly wanting to be outdoors and outdoor spaces are just becoming more and more elaborate. I'm just as surprised as anybody else, you know, people will have TVs outside and a full speaker system and fire tables. And so I think, I think what people are seeing is that you, you know, you might have a 3000 square foot house, but if you've got an extra 500 square feet in your backyard, for, you know, depending on where you live for, you know, six to 12 months, you can spend a lot of time out there and really enjoy it. All
0: right, we're going to take a quick break right now. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. So what were the specific, what was the spikes that you saw in terms of pandemic related sales? And was, were they concentrated in specific products or anything that surprised you in terms of what people were buying that you didn't necessarily expect?
1: Well, dining has been really interesting. So the industry is really looked at in terms of dining and deep seating. So a sofa, two chairs would be deep seating. It's kind of an industry esoteric term. But dining is what, you know, if you think about what your outdoor furniture, your grandparents had, they didn't have big sofas 25 years ago that sat outdoors. And so dining has really been on the decline over the past 25 years. But this year, there was a massive spike in it. And what you were seeing is um, it was much safer to host a neighbor or your grown kids outside um than inside and so and that is taking the form in 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 the form of dinner or lunch you know you'll invite your neighbors over to have dinner and so dining has was revived
0: and so did you I know a lot of companies, and I, especially furniture companies, had issues just with stock issues and remaining in stock. Was that something that you experienced? Did you having the direct connections with manufacturing in, in Asia help with that? Uh, walk me through that.
1: Yeah, relative to the industry, we've been in a really good place, um, but we've still had some some out of stock stuff. Um, and right now our average out of stock time is about four to six weeks. But you know, in this category, it's really, really important to not have long lead times because summer for most of the United States is, is not 12 months long. And so somebody doesn't want to wait, especially when it's June, July, they don't want to wait eight, 12 weeks. And so we've been lucky in that we've been ahead of the competition, but we're not where we want to be so, last year our average order to delivery time was seven point five days. This year will be around twenty one days. Um, with on the most extremes, we'll have furniture delivered to people next day. Uh, but on the other end of that extreme, um, they'll have to wait up to ten weeks. So um, we've been pretty good uh, this year, but not as good as we historically have been or hope to have been.
0: Were you, was there a mad dash, let's say in March or in April, when you, re- when things were warming up and you were like, we need to have everything like, how, what was it like, you know, talking with, you know, all the, all the, the, the parts of the supply chain to try and make sure that you had things in order? Or was it just sort of, we're going to figure it out as it, go along, as it goes along?
1: Yeah. So, um, it was really interesting last year when COVID first hit our March in April was crickets. Yeah. And so it's, um. Our suppliers, like Umbrella Fabric, and even other people in the industry, were calling us and saying, "Hey, what are you guys seeing online?" Because our brick and mortar stores are dead, and we were kind of the first to say, "Hey, we are starting to see it pick up," but um, you know, a lot of brick and mortar brick and mortar stores were closed. Um, this year was the inverse. March and April was crazy, um, and so. You know, we just had to prepare by scaling up customer service and uh, scaling up, you know, warehouse distribution, retail stores, all of that. And so um, it's just working with our factories. It helped that I had, you know, lived in these factories for three and a half years. And so I'm talking with the factory owners a lot. Um, But you later on top of that shipping issues and it was a crazy year Um, and uh, it's been fun. It's been great. I think, you know, the flip side of this is there's no demand and um, I'll take this environment any day over the inverse.
0: Absolutely. Did you find what, g- given that, you know, people weren't really shopping in stores and, you know, show, a lot of showrooms closed, I imagine some of yours had to close for a little bit of time. What? Where were you seeing people buying your furniture? Was it in the hubs where you had showrooms or was it more dispersed throughout the country?
1: We saw a shift to be more dispersed throughout the country, so more uh, reliant on our website. Um, in our stores, what we saw was people were spending a lot less time in the showroom, although they were coming into the showroom. They had done a lot of their homework online already, and they said, Hey, where's your Langdon set? And they went right to the Langdon set, and maybe they would sit in it for 10, 15 seconds, and then say, Hey, it was great seeing you. Um, I'll order online. Um, and so, yeah. What
0: is the current makeup between showroom sales and online sales?
1: this gets down to attribution. So the majority of our, um, the majority of our customers live within 75 miles of our showroom. Mm -hmm. However, the overwhelming majority of our customers are not purchasing in our showroom. So they're purchasing at home or yeah, they're purchasing at home.
0: Interesting. How did this explosion and all of these demand shifts impact product expansion. So, uh, like, you know, I feel like a lot of companies, like a lot of furniture companies expanded to outdoors and started having their own outdoor sets. Are you launching new lines? Are you going into new different areas? Are you, are you thinking about that? Or is it just about getting more showrooms out and, uh, reaching more people?
1: Right now we have 10 collections in our offering. And if you look at the D to C brands that are in outdoors, that's huge. Um, and so, we're lucky in that we we don't think there's a lot of trends in the industry in that, well, I'll, I'll use Pottery Barn for example. Pottery Barn's bestseller, from what I've heard, is that um, it's been their bestseller for over 15 years. And so we're really happy with where our offering's at right now. Where we really are trying to innovate is in getting product to consumers quicker, giving them a better online experience. Um, And the innovation, we're not looking at it as much from a product offering standpoint.
0: Got it. And so, how are you innovating those sort of like invisible parts? How are you getting things to people quicker? Is it just making forging better better partnerships with logistics companies? Are you going to be doing your own in-house delivery? Sort of how how are you approaching all that?
1: Yeah. So we're looking. We're starting to open warehouses across the United States. Um, Part of it, you know, it's not necessarily innovation, but raising more capital to have more inventory and stock earlier, um, to get it to customers. Um, and we, we do some of our own in-house delivery, but really leaning on partners to, um, to get product to people quicker. Um, yeah. Outside partners like FedEx and, um, and last mile home delivery companies.
0: Has it been, I mean, FedEx and I like pretty much every, you know, every company, uh, has been inundated and have issues with that sort of how, how do you deal with that as a company that prize prides itself, uh, on getting, product to customer in a timely fashion in a span that people expect, but then also like, it's hard to control the FedEx experience compared to, you know, if you, if you were doing it yourself. So how are, how are you handling all of those different parts of it for such a, a a pricey piece of furniture?
1: So when we've worked with our delivery partners, the conversation for the past three years is we're going to double every single year. And so that was an anomaly for the industry. Um, but what they saw with COVID is that some of their customers did double. And so a lot of like our partnership with FedEx, for example, we've been telling them for four years, hey, we're going to double every year. And we have been doubling every year. And so they see this as, hey, their business model, they're on to something. And even if this pandemic, when the pandemic subsides, which we're seeing right now, we can trust that Yardbird will continue to double in size versus our other maybe more mature industries are just kind of seeing these one-off flips. So we've been lucky in that regard. It seems like our partners have prioritized us um, on that end because we just set expectations early that that we are going to double in, in size.
0: That makes sense. Has the seasonality of the outdoor furniture industry changed? Uh, I know I keep bringing up my own experience, but like for instance, I bought a fire pit because I wanted people in my backyard during the winter, and so I imagine there. Has there has there been more of a demand during periods when you would expect to sell less furniture?
1: Yeah. So fire, you nailed it. Fire tables um, have expanded. Let's call it a month on each end of the shoulder season. So maybe in March, April, and in August, September, depending on where you live. Um, Will help. I wish it had eradicated all seasonality because it's pretty quiet here in December, um, which you know some of our employees love. But uh, yeah, it's it's proven to be a challenge for us um, in in that sense.
0: Interesting. Are you? Is there anything else that you've thought about doing in order to avoid that seasonality? Have you ever thought about going to indoor? Is it just going to be only outdoor?
1: Yeah, we have. We've of course talked about it. We've talked about you know should we start selling snowblowers or something direct to consumer <laughs> snowblowers, but um, you know we've tried to turn it into our advantage. And what I when I say that, I'll give you an example. Our uh, most of our store managers have four months off, so they have a reverse teacher schedule, and so it helps us recruiting in recruiting. You know, our customer service person, for example, loves to ski, and so they'll take four months and and go be. A, we'll pay them during that period of time. Wow. Um, but they'll be able to go ski for three months. And then in the summer seasons, they're, you know, working the phones, talking with disgruntled, you know, frustrated customers or something like that.
0: Wow. And so what is, so, you know, we're, we're getting close to time, but what is the focus this year specifically? Is it on opening new showrooms? Is it on doing more national marketing so that people know you beyond the showroom area? Sort of walk me through what, what your, what your goals are.
1: Yeah. Our goals are to get more inventory in earlier um, to expand our national brand and to expand in in terms of showrooms, and you know every year we continue to improve small things on quality to really get dialed in to um, you know make customers happy reduce, which reduces you know returns and and everything like that.
0: with the national focus is are you doing sort of any national marketing blitzes are you are, Is there anything in terms of that? Or are you still staying with the more digital channels?
1: No, so we do digital on a national level. Um, we saw a huge opportunity last year in print. So there was a dearth of advertisers in print, um, but there was an incredible amount of eyeballs because of the pandemic. Um, and so we we took, you know, we saw that as an opportunistic play, and we were we were doing that more on a national level. But really, our our national push is PR, Google, Facebook, um, and then as we grow you know we have over 20,000 customers across the united states and that word of mouth really really helps
0: where specifically were you advertising in print
1: we did everything from the new york times to um you know the kansas city star we wow. we tried everything and it what 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 got us onto it is we had looked at advertising a full page ad in the new york times but we just thought it was it was too expensive and and um you know in our smaller testings, we didn't see a great return on ad spend on it. And then our, in March of 2020, our, our sales rep at the New York times called and said, if you guys ever want to advertise in the New York times, it's now it's about one tenth the cost of what it normally is. And there's just an incredible amount of people reading the news. And so we tried it in the New York times. We had a lot of success at that, at that price. And then we just started calling all national papers and, um, Before, you know, within two, three weeks, we had full page ads in, I would say, 10 of the top 20 uh, newspapers nationally.
0: And do you think that they just performed because they were so cheap? Or did you see more people resonating with them?
1: Yeah, at a certain price, um, you know, print works. And we were able to see that that price point during the pandemic. And as it recovers, you know, it becomes less and less viable. But um, yeah, we've also, we are starting to test podcasts and we've seen a, a good return on that. And, um, you know, we've tried direct mail. I mean, we figured that there's gotta be a reason that these big brands send you a catalog every week. And so we've started testing that as well. And it's, it's really interesting, uh, all of this stuff to see how, how people respond to it. But our number one marketing, uh, platform is really our showroom. So if somebody can walk into it, because it raises a lot of questions. Why is this company $6,000? But why is this company $3,000 for a sectional? You know, human nature is to say that that $3,000 set is inferior to that $6,000 set. But if somebody can sit in it, feel it, touch it and see that it's umbrella fabric and it'll be delivered to you via FedEx, they start to gain confidence very quickly. Versus if it was just online, I think it's harder to convince people that that our quality is just as good, if not better than those $6,000 sets.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Jay, this has been such a great conversation. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and head to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review and a rating. See you next week.